The latest report by the Sleep Health Foundation estimates around 1 in 10 Australians have a sleep disorder that can substantially affect their well-being, safety and productivity. That's why in this episode we're going to talk about all things sleep. We're supposed to spend around a third of our lives sleeping and today we're going to find out exactly why it's so important and what we can do to get the best possible rest. Here to help me unpack it all, all the way from New Zealand, I've got Dan Ford, founder and principal psychologist of the Better Sleep Clinic, and our regular health expert, Dr. Paul Herman. Welcome, Dan. G'day. It's great to have you on the show and um, and great to be chatting to you about all things sleep. Now, you're a bit of an expert on sleep, so I'm going to start by asking you the first question. Um and that's, as a psychologist, when did you start to take notice of how important sleep is and why did you choose to specialise in it? Uh, yeah, I I was thinking about this question earlier. The The first time I, I sort of studied sleep was at, at university, but the importance of sleep um, probably came up when I was working in, uh, in defence with the army and there were some US researchers and they were starting to, they were doing a lot of research around, um, around post-deployment stuff and they were noticing that sleep was a sleep was an issue that was often a leading indicator of uh, a decline in sort of well-being and mental health post deployment so and then the second thing was that this was an area that most soldiers and sailors and yeah were um were happy to talk about or more likely to or less reluctant to um talk about so so from a um as a person who likes things to be sort of efficient and effective i thought well this is interesting this is important because here we can we can get you know the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than at the bottom of the cliff and um and we can also work on an area that people actually talk about um and and it creates you know it just opens that door a little bit more for them to um talk about their mental health as well so that's where i sort of thought well this is an area where we should really be investing more time and effort into and then things sort of grow from there into the sleep space because it, it is very important nowadays and i think we're slowly starting to discover that um there's a lot of us that you know don't get ample sleep you know uh, and and it goes undiagnosed for, for many people and it does have a, a profound impact on on our health and well-being um if we don't get good quality sleep um so uh, what uh, what does a healthy night's sleep look like? <laughs> Just to pick up on, on what you said before, I actually got something sent through um, from this Australasian uh, Sleep Association today and they they, uh, they had a link to um, a, a piece of research that was done for the Australian uh, government in 2018. And you, your government hasn't done anything about it, but... but um, they're not alone um, in not recognising the importance, but they're saying four in ten Australians have inadequate sleep. So, uh, you know, if you walk down the road, it's almost like you can, you know, one of two, every two people you meet is uh, is not getting enough sleep, apparently. So, um, yeah. But um, what does a what does a good night's sleep look like? Um, I guess when I think about a good night's sleep, um, uh, you know, there's there's probably a few factors here. Um, I would think about how long does it take you to fall asleep? How long does it, uh, how many times do you wake up at night? Um, uh, what, <clears throat> what's your sleep quality? What does that look like? And, um, and then sleep quantity, how much sleep are you getting? And then, um, and then 
and then possibly looking at things uh, I think a lot of people are interested in sort of uh, how much deep sleep and stuff am I getting but th that's not so that's not so important um, so the real the really important thing is sleep quality is not sleep quantity everyone thinks I need to get eight hours of sleep but I always say to patients uh, clients who come in I say well you know what would you like eight hours of sleep where I came into the room and woke you up every hour on the hour or six hours of sleep where you sleep right through the night mm. the sleep quality is the important thing not the sleep quantity um but you know when when you google stuff up you'll just hear about sleep quantity oh you should get eight hours of sleep um the actual so just uh, the actual research pretty much shows that seven hours is the optimal amount of sleep for most adults um so if you have this artificial target of eight hours um then you you may be doing yourself a disservice no yeah. i agree and is it interestingly objectively <clears throat> all these advice pieces come out with eight hours is that because it's just easy to measure time versus quality you know we have these apps now and we have apple watches and things that give us an indication but i guess from a general pop point of view it's hard for someone to wake up and go, gee, that was six hours of quality uh, compared to, well, I was asleep at 10 and I got up at six. So I know I got eight hours, just don't know what the quality was. Yeah, um, it might be. I think also if you look at it, they tend to give ranges. So it's about, you know, the range for an adult will be seven to sort of nine. And then we, so we go, oh, it must be about eight um, or six to nine or something like that. So, um, and we forget that actually it's a range. So you might be fine on six and for Maria she might need nine you know so you, you really actually start to have to listen to your body yes <laughs> nine hours. I, wish. Oh, nine I can't hours. remember the last time I was in I bed for nine hours I can't remember the last time I had nine hours <laughs> we were just no no I, I don't podcast, know many people going, we need a nap. Nine hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that would be probably too much um but so in terms of sleep quality yeah it is a little bit harder to um to figure out but it's not that hard right um a normal sleeper will have sleep quality of what we call uh, of what we call 85 percent sleep efficiency so this number sleep efficiency is basically if you take if you think about it when you go to bed you might lie in bed for say i went to bed at 10 and i got up at six there's uh there's eight hours in bed but i wasn't asleep the whole time so if i can figure out how long i was asleep so maybe it took me 15 minutes to nod off and then i slept through then I would take that number of my total sleep time, which was uh, what, seven hours 45 or say seven hours 30 for argument's sake. And then I'd divide it into the time I spent in bed, which is eight hours. And that would give me a number. And that would be about, if it was seven and a half hours out of eight, that would be 93%. So 93% of the time that I was in bed, I was asleep. So that's an efficient sleep. Um, and that's a good night's sleep. And so most people should be scoring normal adult sleep should be about 85%. Um, if you're over 95%, you're probably excessively sleepy. And, uh, and if you're over 60 years old, you should probably 80% is, is pretty, a pretty good sleep efficiency number. So that's sleep quality. Sorry, what about how active you are? I get, uh, as an osteopath, I have a lot of patients ask me, but what if I'm dreaming? If I'm dreaming the whole night, like this is what they say, is that good sleep? Is dreaming good sleep or is that superficial sleep? So when we think about sleep, um, you don't, when you go, when you put your head down on your pillow and you, you fall asleep, you'll, uh, you'll sleep in cycles of, of different types of sleep. 
So basically, a sleep cycle lasts from about 90 to 110 minutes. Um, it'll vary between individuals. And in each cycle, they break down at roughly, you'll spend about 50% of a sleep cycle, which means 50% of your night in what we call stage two sleep, which so, so basically you, you start to fall asleep, you're in stage one sleep for about five minutes, and then you go into stage two sleep, which is experienced as quite light sleep, you're relatively easy to wake up here. It's about 50% of a sleep cycle or the night. Then you move into deeper sleep. And this is about 25% of a sleep cycle or 25% of your night. And then the last bit is REM or dream sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where you dream. And that's about the last 25% of a sleep cycle. That's pretty light too, because the next phase is you kind of have a very brief awakening before you go back into stage one, stage two. And by the time you're in dream sleep, it's pretty light and uh, because you're very near awakening. And then you may or may not remember awakening. Okay, so dream sleep is not actually deep sleep. It's as you're starting to come out of your deeper sleep into a, a lighter sleep. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, so. and what 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 it may be is that when you're in a deep sleep, you're out, you right? Know. So you don't really know, but you you might remember that <coughs> that you're in dream sleep. So then yeah. you um so then you remember that in the morning. Yeah. And in which stage of this, you know, I get asked this by patients and athletes all the time. Which is the stage where our body does the most healing? Is that known? That's in that um, uh, what we used to call stage three and four, or, or um, deep sleep, basically, okay. or um, the other term for it is non-REM sleep. But yeah, that deep sleep uh, is stage three now. It, it used to be called stage three and four, and now they just sort of give it one name and deep sleep. Yeah, so that's where your body um, is repairing itself. So your stress hormones, cortisol, that sort of stuff is turned off if you think of a tap it's mm -hmm. turned off and all the stuff like growth hormone and all that sort of thing is turned on and your body is doing its, its repair at that point so if we're not getting quality deep sleep we're essentially also not giving our bodies a chance to recover and repair yeah you're most likely to experience that if you're just not giving yourself enough sleep yep yeah. Okay. What are the what are some of the symptoms of people that don't get enough sleep? I mean, I know I know I've read a study recently that people that have been sleep deprived for a period of time, um, cognitively they their function levels are a lot lower, almost very similar to someone that's been drinking. Um, so I know I know it can affect how you um, how you mentally function. But what what are some of the other things that affect? Um, our bodies and our minds if we don't get enough sleep for long periods of time. I'd imagine, you know, perhaps not one or two days, not a big, not a big deal, but those that have got insomnia or other sleeping disorders, um, it is a bit of an issue for them. So certainly, you know, cognitive effects, but, but actually it's not just a couple of nights. Usually uh, we can actually see if we deprive you of enough sleep, we can see changes within a single night of sleep loss. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, and so we tend to call, uh, we call five and a half hours of sleep. That's called considered to be core sleep. You can last quite a fair amount of time on that, but you do start to feel the effects. And once you dip below that, then the impacts uh, grow exponentially. I mean, people will experience obviously daytime fatigue and tiredness. If you are a normal sleeper and you're not an insomniac, you'll probably experience daytime sleepiness. Is usually uh, it'll be harder to learn stuff. So that's the cognitive element um, because while you're asleep, well, that is where memory is formed, right? So we think in dream sleep, that's where your emotional memories get laid down. 
and in your deep sleep, um, that's where your procedural memory, how you do something, that's where that stuff gets laid down. So that's important for athletes and of course for students as well. So you're gonna you're gonna have trouble recalling stuff if you're not sleeping well. Um, so those all nighters, mm. cramming, yeah, cramming. it's counterproductive, Good. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then you've got, as we sort of touched on before, during deep sleep, that's where the body repairs itself. So that's where you're gonna start to have things like aches and pains come up in the body. Uh, we can see with athletes and that sort of thing, they're more prone to injuries, um, you know, concussions and stuff like that, just through slips and misses and all that sort of stuff, because the other cognitive element is that your alertness goes down, right? And your reaction times go down. So you're going to get injured, that sort of stuff. Um, your muscular st strength and speed drops. I guess your decision-making becomes a lot harder. Mm. It also impacts creativity. So you become less creative. And of course, the big one is your mental health starts to decline. Mm. You were saying before with the military that uh, mental health challenges or disorders were sort of uh, picked up early on by poor sleep. Is it a two-way street that mental health disorders cause poor sleep and can poor sleep lead to mental health disorders? Yeah, absolutely. And and what's really important, and this isn't always recognised, so 10 years ago, if you had um, depression and you had, and you're complaining of insomnia, your doctor would say, oh, well, we'll treat your depression and your insomnia and we'll just assume the insomnia will go away. It's just a secondary symptom. And if you haven't been updating yourself on the research, then you'll miss that. It's now considered to be a standalone disorder. So what they've found is, We'll treat your depression and you'll feel really great uh, in terms of the depression will be gone, but you'll just be left with insomnia. So we actually have to treat each one separately and target them separately with two different um, treatments. The, the other thing is recognizing that uh, if you come in with say depression and insomnia, then you've got an option. You can treat insomnia or you can treat depression. Now, if you treat depression, the depression goes, the insomnia stays. But if you treat insomnia, the insomnia goes, depression often remits as well. Isn't that interesting? This is that, this is that you know, efficiency and effectiveness. Mm. If we send you off for your, uh, for your sleep treatment, and it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because if it you're does, sleeping, It's actually logical now, that, especially with what you were saying before, it actually does make a lot of sense because you, you do need to sleep to be able to recover and regenerate. Um, and that goes for your brain and your mental health as well. So, yeah, it does make sense. So poor sleep and low levels, low quantity of sleep can predispose us to mental health disorders, challenges and potentially mental health diseases. Yeah, because the, the research also shows that, you know, emotionally once you start getting poor sleep and you can reflect on your own experience um, mm. of, of nights of not having great sleep, that uh, what it tends to do emotionally is just it just lops off the top of all your emotions. So you instead of getting highs and lows, you just get you just get flat and low. Okay. Well, I'm going to change tact a little bit, if I may. Uh, as an osteopath, I, I look after mm. patients in the general population, but I also look after Olympic-level athletes. And... My, some of my elite level athletes ask me this question, uh, and it's really twofold, if I may. I'll ask the expert while I've got you here. The first fold of the question being, do I need more sleep than the general population? And is that correlated to the amount of training I'm doing? And the second part being, does that sleep need to be in one hit? Or can I add on naps and, you know, 
uh, I think, I can't remember the um, Prime Minister, maybe Churchill, who used to sleep two hours at a time and just in hits. And athletes come and ask, commonly ask this, can I just do it in hits or does it need to be all at once? There's not just the athletes, right? Uh, you know, the next time I really got into sleep was when I was working with special operations. You know, those are the kinds mm. of guys who, you know, at the moment I work with insomniacs, they're like, I need more sleep. These are the guys who come in and go... How can I get, how can I waste less time sleeping? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Done, you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, tell me how I can optimize all this stuff. Um, so completely different mindset, but um, so more sleep was the first thing you asked, do athletes need more sleep? So first of all, in terms of training load, probably yes, um, but it's going to be individual, right? Mm. Um, so you can't say can't across the board that they need more sleep than the general population, but but the second thing is if you look at research, and I'm, as you can see, I'm a bit of a geek, athletes tend to get less sleep than the general population. Yeah, that's been my experience too, is that actually sleep less. Anecdotally, I've found they benefit when they're in overload periods and they might add in naps. But on average, I would say most of my athletes sleep less than the general population. There's something about you know the anxiety that comes with being an athlete and and before those big performances and stuff you got trainings that go late into the night mm. or early in the morning and you got muscular pain that can you know if you're doing a lot of training pain can keep you awake but yeah so so in generally speaking you'll see the you know some of the research shows that once you get them sleeping more their performance goes up and then if you really drill down when we're saying sleeping more like, because they said, oh, look, when we extended all these athletes' sleep times, look how their performance went up. And but actually drill down to how much sleep they're getting. They're actually just getting probably what most average people are getting and suddenly their performance goes up. Yeah. So um, so do they need more sleep? They need more sleep than they're probably getting at the moment. Gotcha. And is napping a, a, a substitute? Can we nap as a substitute for lower hours of sleep? Does that help? It can. Um, so, so, yeah, there's a whole um, science to napping and there's, there's you know, no doubt Reddit communities of people talking about their napping schedules and how they nap like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci or whatever. I like a nap. Yeah. I like a nap. I'm like a, I like a nano nap, you know. That's why they have siestas overseas. It's a good thing. Yep. So that siesta time is um, just after lunch. Um, I lived in China for a year and I didn't realise they, they have a siesta in China traditionally as well. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, everything shuts down for about two hours and you can't get anything done. But um, so... You know, you have a body clock. Most people have heard of their body clock, um, whether or not they know what that is. But just about, um, just after 12, for virtually everyone, there's a dip in your in this body clock. So it, it starts to wind down a little bit. And that is actually the perfect time to take a little nap because you're already a bit sleepy. Because that body clock is designed to be alert and keep you alert during the day. So as soon as it starts to power down a little bit, you can actually take a nap. So... The, the science of napping is that, and this is, um, you can probably find studies done by NASA on this for astronauts through to, but the people who are really pros at this are the solo round the world yacht people. It takes them about a hundred days to go, or it used to take them a hundred days for the winner to get around the world. And of course they're solo. So they have to do something about their sleep. They can't take eight hours. Mm. Um, so they nap. So you'll find that, um, and sometimes when my clients, when I'm dealing with it, uh, clients with insomnia once they start to get sleepy again I'll, I'll have to teach them how to take a good nap in order to make sure they stay sleepy at night but they can deal with the fatigue of the day so that nap is sort of between midday and three and the time to is around about no more than 20 minutes because okay. then you start going into a deeper sleep cycle 
and then you become uh, groggy and so you have sleep inertia and it's hard to wake up right and then you just want to go back to sleep we've all experienced that one um but if you drill down a little bit the big analysis of analysis so meta-analysis um shows that about 10 minutes is optimal for reducing any sleep inertia you can still get a little bit but 10 minutes and what that will do for you is you'll often feel like you didn't fall asleep but you will have fallen into very light sleep and it will give you energy and it will push off fatigue for the rest of the afternoon. So that is a good one for workers if um, if there's an opportunity to put your feet up, put your head down. Sleep pods, yeah. sleep pods. That's why more and more corporate companies are investing in sleep pods. They do work. They do mm. work. So it'll stave off our fatigue, but it's not a replacement for a good night's sleep. No, no. But your body is smart, right? It will prioritise what it really needs. So what you'll see is that if you don't get a great sleep, last night then you will get more deep sleep the following night mm. so your body will prioritize that and it'll push off your dream sleep because that's not as important okay which brings us to our next question what are the things we should avoid that stop us getting into a good sleep like we all hear about caffeine late at night stay away from your Phone soft drinks that are full of caffeine the the white light or blue light blue i think light it is on your phone. phones and devices uh, one Have that I completely ignore, which is chocolate at night. Um, so what else is on that list that's actually got some science or evidence behind it? People would do well to uh, to listen to their body for when they feel sleepy rather than look at the clock and go, I need eight hours, so I better go to bed now. So, And, and the difference between feeling fatigued and feeling sleepy is that sleepiness is when you can't keep your eyes open and your head is nodding and in defense, we always say your head's whipping, you know. That is sleepy, okay? And all the other stuff, like I feel my eyes are stinging, my body feels like it's got no energy, and my emotionally I feel blah, that is fatigue. And that is not, that is not sleepiness, yeah. But that often is what sends us to bed. So that's a really key one. Um, then I guess the other things that, what we see now, and this is probably a really big one, uh, that'll be the wave of sleep problems uh, in the next 10 years will be the teenagers who are on their devices. Um, and, and adults, right? We're all guilty of going on our devices. I've actually There's... made a point not to just, I don't touch my phone from 7 p.m. unless I have to or something urgent comes through. I don't. And like, <laughs> and the only time I do is when um, I actually can't sleep. So then I'll jump on and go, okay, what's, what's happening on Instagram? Or vice versa. The only time she can't sleep is when she's on her phone. <laughs> <laughs> don't listen yeah, to yeah. me. Hey, so there's there's a couple of things there, right? Um, so you always hear online about bright light. Yeah. yeah. Now the bright light will will uh, waken the the body clock up because the body clock is designed to um, take signals from the environment, um, and one of those signals to be awake is light, and light goes on different uh, is different across um, the spectrum, and so the most powerful time giver to the body clock is the kind of bluey white light that comes off or bluey green light that comes off our phones and our LEDs. So um, so you also have LEDs in your in your house these days as well, like those lights. So, but, but you know, if you really dive down into the research again, it's probably only pushes your, it delays your time to fall asleep by about 10 minutes on average. But, but if you think about it, that's actually about 50% longer time to fall asleep because we sort of say on average, it might take someone maybe 20, 20 minutes to fall asleep is, is normal. So then now you're taking 30 minutes to fall asleep, which can um, be annoying. But 
But the things, the, the two other things that we don't think about when it comes to our devices is, first of all, you know, if you're watching it, if you're like, oh, I can't sleep, I'm going to watch something on Netflix or something like that, right? You don't tend to stop it in the middle of the, the movie and go, oh, oh no. crap, I'm sleepy, I'm going to go to sleep now, right? You watch it to the end. So that yeah. pushes sleep off. Yeah? yeah. So we don't, and then you're suddenly getting inadequate sleep. Now, and then the last one, which is massively underestimated, is just like you're saying, Maria, when you when you jump on your phone, right, and you start scrolling through Instagram, well, these devices are designed. I'm a behavioural psychologist, right? So back in the day, when you left, when you leave university, my lecturer used to say, to you, "You could go to the states, and they'll, you'll definitely find employment in the gambling industry because they'll they'll use your skill to um, to tweak their machines to make them more addictive." But I'd, I'd say that nowadays, I could go and get jobs with you know. Facebook and, and all these social media companies because they want you to stay engaged on their phone. Mm. Mm. And what is engagement? Engagement is a dopamine hit, right? For your brain, your brain is searching and our brains are designed to search, right? To search for food. And when we, and so it gives us a dopamine hit to keep us searching. And then when we find it, we get a, we get a smaller hit of dopamine. So when you're scrolling, think we're searching, right? We're searching yeah, yeah, for a hit. Yeah. And, and we and it powers up our brain and then we find it and then we read it and it engages us yeah and so that actually keeps us awake and that can be an addiction problem as well can't it we can be addicted to that dopamine hit via that mechanism yeah i mean that's what what, what doom scrolling right yeah. <laughs> that's hey right. quick uh, yes or no to the following three if i can i'm sorry if this puts you on the spot reading at late at night good or bad uh well if you can't sleep good yeah, oh, <laughs> just not uh, just better out of a book, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah those yeah, eye yeah. movements you're yeah. using your brain. Those yep. eye movements uh, can help to actually make you a little bit sleepy. So, reading book, good. All right, eating before bed. Do you know if it makes any difference to sleep? Small, small snack, sort of no bigger than a fist size carb, um, is is good. So often, like I'm always eating like corn tins because they're low calorie and in the small snack um, yeah. help you sleep. Yeah, but too big a meal will no delay your sleep right because you, you've got to digest it and then the other things there is a bit of evidence you know because a lot of my clients go and see um nutritionists and stuff and come back with all these different pills and whatnots but um your fatty foods so all the normal culprits fatty foods sugary foods raise cortisol right which then you that that is the stress hormone so it makes it harder to fall asleep getting more fiber into your diet especially if you're an athlete is associated with a deeper sleep. And last one, exercise. You know, yes. before sleep, uh, and obviously meditation, stretching will aid our relaxation. But what about uh, increasing hormonal changes? If I say do 50 push-ups, I know some people have this habit of doing push-ups before they go to bed or crunches. Do you think that's going to affect them? Um, well, uh, usually the studies are looking at people exercising around sort of four in the afternoon and they find that that helps you fall asleep. However, if you do it too close to bedtime, then what that does is it raises your heart rate, right? Which activates the body, which is the opposite of relaxation, which is usually what we're saying you need to be, the state you need to be in to fall asleep. So too close to bedtime, you can get too much of a good thing, too close to bedtime, yep. not so good. Okay. What about caffeine? I know we touched on it a little bit, but I, I'm a, I love coffee. <laughs> Paul loves coffee too. What are the impacts of caffeine on our sleep? Variable, right? Okay. Um, yeah, so it's really individual. Some people can drink a ton of coffee before bed or and, and it doesn't 
affect them. Mm, um, yeah. They fall asleep. Other people, you know, there's studies that show that uh, one cup um, 16 hours later when there's barely, barely yeah. trace of the person's body and it still keeps them awake or fragments their sleep. So um, virtually everyone with insomnia will come and they'll say, I've cut caffeine. But after a while, I'm like, you know what, if it's not making much difference, you might actually, you know, if you're feeling fatigued from that bad night of sleep, you might do well to have a, co- a cup of cup coffee. Of- hot cup of joe to get you going in the morning you know yeah, and push yeah. off the fatigue so you just gotta you really gotta work it out um but usually we'll say about five hours to to half strength so that means it's going to be about 10 hours in your body yeah yeah, yeah. that makes sense yeah. what about having a sleep routine there's been all this stuff um in, in a lot of wellness platforms and um and obviously other podcasts people talking about having a, a really good sleep routine in terms of before you go to bed so kind of cueing your body and getting it into that state of relaxation so that it knows okay i'm getting ready i'm going to bed how important is that or is it important yeah it is quite important right um you ask any parent um, you know, <laughs> what do they do? Do they, do they just pick up their, their, you know, their four-year-old and plonk them in bed and, and point their finger and say, go to sleep, right? You, you don't normally do that. Uh, most, <laughs> most parents have a, have a little bit of a routine going on, right? They get in your PJs and then brush your teeth and then you're in bed, you read some books and you're off, right? Yeah. And we forget. So when, when we're babies, right, babies sleep anywhere and parents have to train their babies to sleep in bed. And that is an association. That is brain training, right, to associate the bed with sleep. And then when you build a little routine onto it, then that, that's what we call in behavioral psychology, we call it chaining. And that starts to set up the sleep, right? And it, and it strengthens the, the sleep association by having a little routine or chain. So, so that's, that still stands when we're an adult. But when you're an adult, I think this, the, the thing that is quite prevalent today is that we have very fast-paced lives, right? There is nine zillion things to do. And then we think that we can just be sprinting through our day and then the moment and then you know it, it gets to 10 10 30 i can see full smile and then and then you're like all right i've got a sprint to, go to sleep and lie in bed you know and, and, and then you're like why aren't i sleeping you know so your brain needs some time to power down and so that routine so i often call it you know instead of a routine it's a buffer zone it's a buffer yeah. zone between the day and sleep mm. so it's just helping you to switch off calm down set the stage and if someone's struggling with sleep, if they're having difficulties getting or either difficulties with fatigue or sleepiness or the difficulties, what they perceive as being difficulties with their sleep quality or quantity, at what point should they see a psychologist? And I know this is going to be a slightly biased question, but how do they know which psychologists are CBTI trained or are behavioral psychologists or sleep experts, etc.? shouldn't use the term expert, sorry, sleep uh, trained? Mm, good question. Um, so first up, how do you know when it's a problem? There's a, there's a couple of big sleep disorders, right? Uh, insomnia, um, which is trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, waking too early. It's in fact impacting your day. You've got sleep apnea, which is a respiratory problem where you stop breathing while you're asleep. That one's really dangerous. That'll kill you um, over time. And... Um, then uh, and then there's a few others. The few uh, some of the others like hypersomnolence, right? That is excessive sleepiness. You generally all know that that's a problem because you're falling asleep while someone's talking to you or something like that. But sleep apnea, that'll be that can be a symptom of that too, right? Oh, because wow. basically you're not getting any sleep, of course. Yeah, they but they don't know that they're actually fast asleep, but because they're not breathing, their body will shoot adrenaline into the body to wake it up to breathe. They are still asleep, 
but then you can have something like you know a really bad case of sleep apnea you'll be like 400 awakenings per night oh wow you are, but you are actually dead to the world the whole time that and then you wake up that and I like, know. so is that oh, why crap. it's important to do a sleep study i know you kind of on your website you go i'm not you know you don't need to do a sleep study but i think if you're if if they're not sure and they're awake or they're not getting rest and they're very, very fatigued during the day, um, is that why it's super important to do a sleep study? Well, even for insomnia, uh, sorry, insomnia is not required, a sleep study is not required. Sleep apnea, you could do a sleep study, um, but actually you can you can pick it up just by having an oximeter on your finger at night because basically your oxygen levels are dropping and that's mm. why your body has to oh, make shoot adrenaline into you. So, so you know, some clinics will just give you an oximeter you put that on your finger and then you you send it back to them they upload the data and they can say oh look you know your oxygen levels while you're sleeping was falling below 90 percent this many times in the night you've got sleep apnea here's your machine we'll come in and get a fitting it's like that these days with technology and i guess you know this is where a good gp would probably consider also an ent involved in this and you know throat specialist because there may be some structural reasons why that person has sleep apnea i'd have several patients who have had such chronically scarred tonsils that it was actually a structural reason for their sleep apnea and once they got that fixed they didn't have sleep apnea anymore it was structural rather than um, respiratory based you're correct. You do need to find out if there's structural problems. So sometimes it's a matter of starting at the at the top of the tree with the ENT. I'm not I'm not much of a respiratory sleep specialist, um, but my understanding is for sleep apnea, mostly surgery is not indicated mm. um, unless it's an unusual situation, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, usually CPAP or those little machines that force airway, uh, force air into your um, into your uh, system, into your throat to keep the um, airways open is is the number one treatment. But if you've got mild or um, yeah, mild or, or low moderate, then or actually a mouth there's there's mouth guards that actually just pull the jaw forward. So so it doesn't have to be some mach- perceived noisy machine that keeps your um, partner awake all night either. Um, so yeah, sleepiness, excessive sleepiness will be the one for um, sleep apnea um, and. For insomnia, I think really it's when, well, some people are just, they're awake all night. Um, that's kind of an indicator on, on successive nights. So we would say um, trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, um, waking too early more than three nights a week for more than three months, that's chronic. Uh, more than a month is acute, yeah. But but you'd also kind of know too when, when basically you've tried all the sleep hygiene stuff and nothing is helping you sleep because... Sleep hygiene doesn't help insomnia, but you need, but it's necessary to have that stuff in place, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. So people listening to this podcast today, uh, obviously you're in Auckland um, and New Zealand, so they, they can do a Zoom um, catch up with you and talk about their, their sleep issues. However, mm-hmm. um, what are some, are there any apps that you can recommend? I know there's heaps of apps on meditation and I've noticed there's heaps on sleep and, and whatnot. Are there, are there any ones that you'd highly recommend? Uh, yeah, there is a, there is, there are a couple of actual um, CBT for insomnia. There's a therapy that I do um, apps. Um, one is Sleepio, so sleep IO. If you're, if you're um, not sure if you're snoring or, or like if you live alone and you're wondering, oh, sleep apnea maybe, um, and because often it's your partner that tells you, Did, you're stopping, you know, you're snoring really loud or you're stopping breathing. So, so something like uh, the app Sleep Cycle will actually 
it will restart recording whenever you start snoring um, so you can get a sense of what's going on at night um, we were talking about caffeine before there's a, there's an old app called caffeine zone 2 that um, was designed by the US Navy it's pretty old now there's probably better ones but basically you can kind of work, uh, roughly work out your dosing by entering all different things in, and then whenever you take a cup of coffee, you estimate how much caffeine was in it, you plug it in, and it will tell you if you want to go to bed at 10, 10 p.m. tonight, um, you know, it'll give you an alert when uh, you're not, this is not going to clear your system in time. So, um, so that can be handy. Just a quick question, Dan. Um, you mentioned um, snoring. Um, is snoring a symptom of sleep apnea? It's one, right? Um, okay. Snoring alone is not. Lots of people snore. Um, if you snore loud enough to be heard through a door, uh, then then you, that's, yeah, I mean, impressive. we laugh, but it's not that, that uncommon. That is just yeah. And then the second thing, if you've been doing it for 15 years, then there's a pretty good chance you've got sleep apnea. Yeah. But the other the other four key ones for sleep apnea, so it's the acronym is STOP, right? So snoring, you feel tired during the day. Um, someone notices, so that's T, O for someone notices obstructions like that you're not breathing, you're, you're gasping at night while asleep, and then P is high blood pressure. So if you've got any two of those four, then uh, then you are highly likely to, um, you're a good candidate for sleep apnea. So we were saying before about a referral to a psychologist if people have some sleep disorders or disordered sleeping, and obviously GP is usually the first port of call to make sure we're clearing medical causes and things that might be pathological, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned CBTI. If we were looking for a psychologist, are there... I know, you know, from obviously with our work and I have a clinical psychologist as part of our team, are there different types of psychologists that are more likely to be trained in CBTI, like there's social psychs, behavioral psychs, clinical psychs? Should people be looking for a type of psychologist or can any type of psychologist be trained in CBTI? Um, Generally speaking, you're going to need someone with uh, mental health training. So it's going to be a, uh, a clinical psychologist potentially a counselling psychologist, certainly a sleep psychologist um, should be trained. Um, and and then you just want to double check that they that they have some familiarity with other sleep disorders. That's probably where I differentiate from your average clinical psychologist is they might not know that much about sleep, so they wouldn't necessarily know. They might be able to do CBTI with you, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to work out whether or not you've got insomnia or you've got a delayed sleep phase circadian rhythm sleep disorder or you know all these other sleep disorders that come up so so there's a there's a whole nother there's mental health issues and then there's sleep issues and so your sleep psychologist has to be kind of across all of them yep Mm, makes sense no it's good Mm. to know because i think Sometimes in the general population and in society, we kind of forget. We think psychologists deal with everything and every psychologist can deal with everything. Uh, but there is there is specialization, isn't there? And there is, you know, there's a lot to mental health. So it's great that we're seeing these pathways, um, you know, with specialization develop further and further. Talk to me about sleep hygiene. I mean, um, what does that actually mean? What's sleep hygiene? Yeah, good, good question. I can't give you a great explanation of why it's called hygiene. Um, because I'm just thinking clean bed, clean sheets. <laughs> yeah, that's right, eh? Um, you know, brush your teeth before you go to bed. I don't know. That's that's what comes up. But is, it sounds like it's super important and I don't know anything about it. Is that what it is or is it more than that? 
Um, so it's not clean sheets, although the, I'm sure having clean sheets can help you have a better night's sleep. Um, but it is, uh, it's all those things that you, you can easily find on, on the internet about, you know, don't have too much caffeine, oh, get some okay. exercise, all that kind of stuff. So, so that, um, sleep advice is, is probably the, yeah. And, and for some reason it's called hygiene for. Why is it called hygiene? That does not make sense. I have no sense. idea. I like that one you said before about the buffer. You know, what yeah. do you do in the buffer zone before you go to sleep? So there's a bit of sleep hygiene, yeah. yeah. And I know room temperature plays an important part. And I know with me it does. If it's too hot, um, I can't sleep. And if it's too cold, I can't sleep. What we say is uh, it's about sort of 18 to 20 degrees. And so the rule of thumb is cool face, warm body, right? So you've got the blanket on your body and it's, and it's warm, but your face is a little bit cool. The room's not too hot. The reason for that is because... Part of your, when your body clock powers down at night, part of that, you know, how everyone's popping these melatonin pills and, oh, this will help me sleep and all that sort of stuff. What melatonin does is it actually helps your body to, when that is released naturally in your body, it actually helps your body to release heat. So in order to fall asleep, your body must push heat from the core. So, you know, around your heart and your key organs out into the periphery, which is your fingers and your toes and all that sort of stuff. So that has to happen for you to be able to, for your body temperature to fall and then for you to feel sleepy and fall asleep. And of course, on a hot summer's night, it can't, your body can't dissipate that heat. So, and, and obviously a lot worse in, in, um, in Australia than in New Zealand, right? So then you, you find yourself lying there. So, uh, you know, for, in terms of falling asleep, what can be quite helpful is is jumping in the shower. So the studies say 90 to 60 to 90 minutes before you go to bed, you, you take a hot shower because that the heat builds up in your body. And then when you jump out of the shower, your body has to release it. So that actually starts this process and helps you fall asleep a bit quicker. Now, being since you guys are in Australia, the other top tip is put your aircon on a timer because later on in the morning, you're, you're, uh, you get more dream sleep in the sort of post 3 a.m. in the early hours of the morning, you get more dream sleep. At that time, your body is no longer regulating heat. It can't regulate heat when you're in that sort of, in that dream sleep cycle. So if the room gets too cold, suddenly you're waking up because you're cold and your body can't, can't cope with it. So, um, so that's why you want to put it on a timer to help you fall asleep at the start of the night. And then it sort of switches off in the, in the, in the going into the early hours of the morning. Mm, good to know. I have one last fallacy question. Uh, I don't know if it's a myth or fallacy or what, but one hour's sleep before midnight is worth two hours sleep after midnight. Is this true or is this a complete myth that I've heard? Or was it just when I was growing up, my mum's way of trying to get me to go to bed before midnight? <laughs> That's a good well, what the science to that probably is, is that when you, so you're at the start of the night, I talked about these sleep cycles earlier. At the start of the night, you to each sleep cycle, um, the sleep cycles vary across the night. What you can think of it is like you've got the rhythm in your body for deep sleep and you've got a rhythm for dream sleep. And the peak for dream for deep sleep um, will happen at the start of the night. So, well, actually, it's probably not a good analogy, um, but think about it like this. <laughs> what, what, what we do see on an on a, um, EEG is that, uh, or on your, on your brain scans, is that you get more deep sleep in the early sleep cycles because your body is, is prioritizing what it needs. And so you get more deep sleep in each sleep cycle at the start of the night. And as 
as that deep sleep is discharged and cleared out of the body, then you start to get more dream sleep in the in the second half of the night. So this is probably why people are like, I feel so much more refreshed for those early hours of the night because they're getting all their deep sleep needs met at that point in time. What about when you wake up in the middle of the night, but you're not you're not an insomniac, but you just wake up, you you know, you go to bed whatever, ten o'clock and you wake up at three and then you kind of can't fall back asleep, but then you get really tired at four. <laughs> it's not a personal question. It is, it is a personal question. No, no, it's not. No, I'm just that. It's interesting because no, it's not. It, it's actually, I've spoken to a lot of friends that go, oh, my God, I was. I got. I don't know why I got up, but I got up at 3 o'clock and I just couldn't fall back asleep. So I went and folded some clothes and, you know, did a, put, a, put a load of laundry on and then I went back to sleep and couldn't get up. Well, physiologically, your your sleep is determined by that that deep sleep need, and uh, and the other one is your body clock, right? And so the body the the low for the body clock is about three a.m. in the morning, where the alert signal is at its lowest, and that is probably around about the time where your deep sleep is cleared out as well, right? So you so deep sleep is actually a buildup of of stuff in your brain. It's a neurotransmitter sort of byproduct that builds up in your brain as you're active during the day and that makes you sleepy. And then when the when your um when your body clock powers down, it enables you then to fall asleep. And um and then as you're sleeping through the night, that deep sleep is cleared out. And so what may be happening is at 3 a.m. you're waking up because either there's the deep sleep has cleared out and now the um, the alert signal is, is still a little bit on, or potentially um, what is happening is that uh, you are actually spending too long in bed. If you ask those friends, what time do you go to sleep? What time do you get up? And if it's like, I go to bed at 10 in the, at night and I'm getting up at like seven in the morning, that's quite a long time in bed, right? So bad idea, TVs in the bedroom. Yeah, for, for the same reason as social media. But the other one is that when if you leave it on, which some people do, right, to help them fall asleep, the, the reason why it's not as good as, say, um, uh, white noise or brown noise or pink noise or all these <laughs> coloured noises that you hear about um, is that uh, the TV volume varies, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. so sometimes it's a drama and they start yelling and screaming and guns fire, or, you know, they just, it goes onto an ad and the ad is like five times louder than the program as we all, um, so, and that wakes you up, right? Because your brain is always is listening while you're asleep. I thank you so much for joining us today um, and, and talking about all things sleep. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this episode with founder of Sleep Better, Dan Ford. If you'd like more information on Dan and the Sleep Better Clinic, visit his website www.thebettersleepclinic.com or follow him on his socials at The Better Sleep Clinic. If you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe and follow at Casper Magazine to get the latest and greatest on health and wellness. Ciao for now.